go ahead and open up our Bibles to Judges chapter 9. If you're using one of the pew Bibles in front of you, it's going to be on page 208. Judges 9 goes from 208 to 210. <coughs> this morning's sermon is going to be all about Abimelech. But before we talk about Abimelech, we're going to talk about the city of Philadelphia. The city of Philadelphia is not very much revered in the modern American mind, culturally or politically. Most Americans, when they think about the city of brotherly love, they tend to think about a few things. They think about running up the rocky steps, right? I did it. It was hard. They think about the home of the fresh prince of Bel-Air. That's where he got into all the trouble. Or they think about a, a Philly cheesesteak sandwich, right? Those are the three things that are kind of, that kind of come to our minds when we think about the city of Philadelphia. But 250 years ago, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania was the most important city in America. Many of the nation's most significant political and cultural developments occurred there. For example, Pennsylvania became the first abolitionist state in the Union in 1780, and much of the state's abolition work took place right there in the city of Philadelphia. Philly was also home, uh, it was the home base, it was not where he was born, he was born in Boston, but it became the home base of none other than Benjamin Franklin, who established the nation's first free library, the nation's first hospital, the nation's first educational society. Uh, the vast majority of the early American printing, from tracts to newspapers to books, it all flowed out of the presses that were located right there in the city center of Philadelphia. But there are two events, perhaps the two most important events in the political history of these United States, two events that took place in the city of brotherly love. The signing of the Declaration of Independence and the signing of the U.S. Constitution. Although the city of Philadelphia may not mean much to you or to me, to the, to the modern American, the name of this once great city would have been ripe with meaning and significance to every single American citizen just 200 years ago. Well, in the same way, the land of Shechem may not mean much to Christians today as we read through the book of Judges, but to the Jews in the days of the Judges... Shechem would have been a name and a place absolutely loaded with meaning and significance. It would have been their Philadelphia. Two hugely important spiritual events had taken place in the land of Shechem leading up to the days of Judges. The first was the land promise made to Abraham. The Israelites would have known Shechem as the place where Yahweh first promised Abraham that they would, in fact, inherit the promised land. So you can listen in Genesis 12. Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Morah at Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. And the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring, I will give this land. The second significant event to occur in Shechem was the covenant renewal ceremony made by Joshua and the Israelites right before they went into the promised land. And in Joshua 24, we can read of this exchange. Joshua said to the people, and he told them the truth about themselves, You are not able to serve the Lord. He is a holy God. 
If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, he will turn and bring disaster on you and make an end of you after he has been good to you. Uh, But the people said to Joshua, No, we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said, You are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen to serve the Lord. Yes, replied the people, we are witnesses. And so, as we move from Judges 8 to Judges 9, we move from Ophrah, uh, the city of Gideon, a.k.a. Jeroboam, to Shechem, a city of great historical significance, a city with a history of grace. Unfortunately, as we dive into Judges 9 this morning, as we begin to look at what unfolds in Shechem, we will find very little grace. So let me pray, and then we will see for ourselves. Father, there may not appear to be an abundance of grace in Judges 9, but there is an abundance of grace in this room. We have your word. We have your spirit. Through the the gathered body of the saints, we have your presence. God, we have everything that we could possibly need. We ask that you would help us to not be like the sinful Israelites in the days of the judges, that our hearts would not be inclined to ignore you this morning, but rather that our ears would be attentive, that the eyes of our hearts would be opened to see the fullness of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to comprehend your gospel this morning. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. So we're going to divide our sermon up this morning into two parts. The first half of our sermon is we're going to be just taking a little walk. Okay, We're going to go on a walk through the text. We're going to read all of Judges 9 together. And you can think about this like a guided tour. Okay, I'm going to just be trying to show you something here, something there. Just little details that in order to understand the text, you really don't want to miss. Okay, And then after that, we're going to dig in and we're going to try to explore some of the meaning and, and significance for our lives today. So let's go ahead and jump into part one. Let's take this walk. So let's go to Judges chapter 9, just starting in verse 1. Now Abimelech, the son of Jeroboam, went to Shechem to his mother's relatives and said to them and to the whole clan of his mother's family, Say in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, which is better for you, that all seventy of the sons of Jeroboam rule over you, or that one rule over you? Remember also that I am your bone and your flesh. Okay, so here we have Abimelech. He is the son of Gideon, a.k.a. Jerobel, right? That's the name that the text uses this morning. He had his name changed. And we remember that his name means the, uh, my father is king. So he, but there's an issue here. Uh, Abimelech wasn't the son of one of Gideon's wives, but rather the son of Gideon's concubine. We're going to explore that here in a moment. But he goes to Shechem to his mother's relatives, okay? Most likely Canaanites. And he, he goes to them and he says, hey, uh, you're my family. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to make a bid to the rulers of Shechem that I should be the ruler, essentially that I should be the king. So I want you to go and make that argument on my behalf. And, and then, you know, he basically says, here's the argument. There's two points I want you to make. Number one, uh, what's better, 70 rulers, you know, all, me and all my brothers, or one ruler? Probably one. And the second argument is... Remember that I am your bone and your flesh, right? So I come from you, I'm one of you, therefore you should choose me to be your leader. Let's keep going. Verse 3. And his mother's relatives spoke all these words on his behalf in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem. 
and their hearts inclined to follow Abimelech. For they said, He is our brother. And they gave him 70 pieces of silver out of the house of Baal-bareth, which was one of their false gods, with which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless fellows who followed him. And he went to his father's house at Ophrah and killed his brothers, the sons of Jeroboam, 70 men on one stone. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jeroboam, was left, for he hid himself. And all the leaders of Shechem came together, all Beth Milo, and they went and made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar at Shechem. So here we have this horrendous event wherein the people listened to Abimelech's family and their, their persuasive presentation, and they gave him money, 70 shekels. That's one shekel per brother that was supposed to be killed. Well, minus one for him. He'll pocket that. And then the text says that they were all killed on one stone. This is significant. It means that there wasn't a battle. It means that these worthless men that Abimelech took with him to go get his brothers, they quickly subdued the brothers and then systematically, one by one, laid them down on the stone and murdered them. It was a bloodbath. And then finally, the people, in response to this victory by Abimelech and his hired mercenaries, they appoint him as king. But the narrator sees things a little differently. As we move into verse 7, we see, When it was told to Jotham, he went and stood on top of Mount Gerizim and cried aloud and said to them, Listen to me, you leaders of Shechem, that God may listen to you. The trees once went out to anoint a king over them. And they said to the olive tree, Reign over us. But the olive tree said to them, Shall I leave my abundance by which gods and men are honored and go hold sway over the trees? And so the trees said to the fig tree, You come and reign over us. But the fig tree said to them, Shall I leave my sweetness and my good fruit and go hold sway over the trees? And the trees said to the vine, You come and reign over us. But the vine said to them, Shall I leave my wine that cheers God and men and go hold sway over the trees? Then all the trees said to the bramble, which is a thorn bush, You come and reign over us. And the bramble said to the trees, If in good faith you are anointing me king over you, then come and take refuge in my shade. But if not, let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. And so here we see the the brother of Abimelech, just one of them, Jotham. He's escaped. He goes to the top of this little mount, which is overlooking the city, and he says, oh, I have a word from you, and it's a parable. And it's a parable of these three trees. One is the olive tree, right? One is the vine, which is the grapevine, and then the other one is the fig tree. And these would have been the most valuable, most productive, most life-giving trees in that part of the world at that time. And all these trees, they're, they're these underling trees, and the, the underling trees go to each one of them in turn and say, will you be king over us? And they go, no, I'm enjoying my life over here doing what I'm doing. I can't be your king. Until they get to the bramble, and the bramble says, okay, I'll be your king. Now, the point of this parable is that these first three trees are all qualified to lead, and yet they have the humility to say, no, I don't think I should be doing this. And then finally you get to the bramble, the thorn bush, the, the, the tree that 
when the summer sun comes down, sometimes lights on fire and catches all the other trees on fire. The least qualified tree of the bunch says, I'll be your king. Let's move on. Verse 16. Now, therefore, if you acted in good faith and integrity, now remember, this is Jotham speaking again to the leaders of, uh, of Shechem. When you made Abimelech king, and the obvious point is that you did not, and if you have dealt well with Jerobel and his house and have done to him as his deeds deserved, and obviously you didn't, for my father fought for you and risked his life and delivered you from the hand of Midian, and, and you have risen up against my father's house this day and have killed his son, 70 men on one stone, and have made Abimelech the son of his female servant, king over the leaders of Shechem because he is your relative. If you then have acted in good faith, and you haven't, and integrity, you don't have it, with Jerobel and with his house this day, then rejoice in Abimelech, and let him also rejoice in you. But if not, let fire come out from Abimelech, and devour the leaders of Shechem and Beth Milo. And let fire come out from the leaders of Shechem and from Beth Milo, and devour Abimelech. And Jotham ran away and fled and went to Beer and lived there because of Abimelech, his brother. He ends this parable by saying, I guess we'll see, won't we? Whether you should have appointed Abimelech, the, the bramble bush king in your midst. Verse 22. Abimelech ruled over Israel three years. And God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem. And the leaders of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech. That the violence done to the 70 sons of Jerobel might come and their blood be laid on Abimelech, their brother, who killed them, and on the men of Shechem who strengthened his hand to kill his brothers. And the leaders of Shechem put men in ambush against him on the mountaintops, and they robbed all who passed by them along the way. And it was told to Abimelech. So here we get a little bit of a peek behind the curtain. The Lord intervenes. He sends an evil spirit. We'll talk a little bit more about how that works later. Don't have all the answers. I think we have some of them. But this spirit begins to put Abimelech, pit Abimelech and the people of Shechem against one another. They just appointed him. Now they're working against one another to the point that they try to set up highway robbery to take all the spoils of Abimelech. Verse 26. And Gaul, the son of Ebed, moved into Shechem with his relatives, and the leaders of Shechem put confidence in him. A newer, shinier warrior king arrives on the scene. And wouldn't you know, the, the leaders of Shechem go, ooh, we, we like this guy a little bit better than Abimelech. Verse 27. And they went out into the field and gathered the grapes from their vineyards and trod them and held a festival. And they went into the house of their god and ate and drank and reviled Abimelech. Okay, They're having a we hate Abimelech party. Verse 28. And Gaul, the son of Ebed, said, Who is Abimelech? And who are we of Shechem that we should serve him? Is he not the son of Jerobel? And is not Zebul his officer? Serve the men of Hamor, the father of Shechem. But why should we serve him? Would that this people were under my hand, then I would remove Abimelech. I would say to Abimelech, increase your army and come out. Gaul rises up and says, I should be your king. I should be your leader. 
and you tell Abimelech I said so. You tell him to get his men, I'll get my men, and we'll see each other out in the street, and we'll fight it out. Verse 30. When Zebul, the ruler of the city, heard the words of Gael, and by the way, Zebul is, uh, he was working for Abimelech. He was kind of like his military strategist. When Zebul, the ruler of the city, heard the words of Gaul, the son of Ebed, his anger was kindled. So he wasn't happy about this treachery. He's, he's sympathetic to Abimelech, verse 31. And he sent messengers to Abimelech secretly, saying, Behold, Gaul, the son of Ebed, and his relatives have come to Shechem, and they are stirring up the city against you. So apparently Abimelech's not in town, but, you know, Zebul's still there, and he's kind of running things for him, and he tips him off to what's happening, this insurrection. Verse 32. Now, therefore, go by night, you and the people who are with you, and set an ambush in the field. Then in the morning, as soon as the sun is up, rise early and rush upon the city. And when he and the people who are with him come out against you, you may do to them as your hand finds to do. So Abimelech and all the men who were with him rose up by night and set an ambush against Shechem and four companies. And Gaul, the son of Ebed, went out and stood in the entrance of the gate of the city. And Abimelech, excuse me, and Abimelech and the people who were with him rose from the ambush And when Gaul saw the people, he said to Zebul, Look, people are coming down from the mountaintops. And Zebul said to him, "Uh, You're mistaken, the shadow of the mountains for men. And Gaul spoke again and said, Look, people are coming down from the center of the land, and one company is coming from the direction of the diviner's oak. Then Zebul said to him, Where is your mouth now? You who said, Who is Abimelech that we should serve him? Are not these the people whom you despised? Go out now and fight with him. And Gael went out at the head of the leaders of Shechem and fought with Abimelech. And Abimelech chased him, and he fled before him. And many fell wounded up to the entrance of the gate. And Abimelech lived at Arumah, and Zebul drove out Gaul and his relatives so that they could not dwell at Shechem. So Gaul came around and said, hey, let's fight. And they did. And Gaul lost. Abimelech had a man on the inside, a strategist, tipped him off. Abimelech wins. Verse 42. On the following day, the people went out into the field, and Abimelech was told. He took his people and divided them into three companies and set an ambush in the fields. And he looked and saw people coming out of the city, so he rose against them and killed them. Abimelech and the company that was with him rushed forward and stood at the entrance of the gate of the city while the two companies rushed upon all who were in the field and killed them. And Abimelech fought against the city all that day. He captured the city and killed the people who were in it, and he razed the city and sowed it with salt. Abimelech is not merely content to defeat the armies of Gaul or the army of Gaul. Now he's going to kill everyone in the city. So he waits the next day until people come out from the city feeling safe, going out into the field, working the vineyards, working the olive trees, working the figs. He blocks off the gate of the city so that they can't get back inside. Then he has his army destroy everyone that they can find. The language that the text uses here is that he raised the city. That's not not raised, right? It's R-A-Z-E-D. It's completely obliterated it, annihilated it. And then it says afterwards he sowed it with salt. In the ancient world, this was uh, a symbol of utter destruction. If you just go out into your lawn and you take like a patch of grass and you dump some salt on it, you'll find that pretty soon that patch of grass is dead. And so it's said that in the ancient world, people would sow the soil, excuse me, sow the soil with salt, therefore killing it and making it unproductive. 
This is symbolic. It would have taken literally a mountain load of salt to salt the entire city. But the point here is that we have utterly destroyed you so that even generations after you will not be able to find life here. Think about what happened at Chernobyl, that kind of thing, just through military power. Verse 46. When all the leaders of the tower of Shechem heard of it, they entered the stronghold of the house of Elbereth. Abimelech was told that all the leaders of the tower of Shechem were gathered together, and Abimelech went up to Mount Zalman, he and all the people who were with him. And Abimelech took an axe in his hand and cut down a bundle of brushwood and took it up and laid it on his shoulder. And he said to the men who were with him, "Which you have seen me do, hurry and do as I have done. So every one of the people cut down his bundle and following Abimelech, put it against the stronghold, and they set the stronghold on fire over them, so that all the people of the tower of Shechem also died about a thousand men and women. Here we see it appears that there are leaders and then additional people from the city who fled to this tower, likely the tower of an idol. And they tried to hide inside this tower to escape what was happening with Abimelech and his army. And Abimelech went and burned them alive. A thousand of them. Verse 50. Then Abimelech went to Thebes and encamped against Thebes and captured it. The rampage continues, right? He just can't be stopped. Verse 51, But there was a strong tower within the city, and all the men and women, all the leaders of the city, fled to it and shut themselves in. And they went up to the roof of the tower. And Abimelech came to the tower and fought against it and drew near to the door of the tower to burn it with fire. So Abimelech, he's on a roll. He's thinking, I've already burned down one tower. This is easy. These, these, These idiots, they didn't see what I just did to that tower. I'm about to do it again. Well, maybe. Verse 53. And a certain woman threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. Fantastic. Verse 54. Then he called quickly to the young man, his armor bearer, and said to him, Draw your sword and kill me, lest they say of me, A woman killed me. So he got beat up by a woman, and he doesn't want anyone to know about it. And his young man thrusted him through, and he died. Just, I want to point out in passing that Abimelech was so afraid of people knowing that he died at the hand of a woman, and yet here we are reading about this woman today. Verse 55, And when the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, everyone departed to his home. Thus, God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he committed against his father in killing his 70 brothers. And God also made all the evil of the men of Shechem return to their heads. And upon them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jeroboam. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. Amen? That's part one. Let's move into part two. Let's dig into the meaning and significance. I've got seven points for you derived from Judges chapter 9. Tribalism. Curse, vacillation, word, judgment, grace, and authority. If you didn't get all those, I'm going to try to remember to give them to you as we go. Point number one, tribalism. It was not very difficult for Abimelech to convince the leaders of Shechem that he should be their king. Do you guys remember two arguments? The first was, one is better than 70, and then the second one was, uh, I'm one of you, so you should choose me. 
Now, it's important to keep in mind that this second reason for wanting to be king, it was only, it was only half true when he says, I'm one of you. Remember, his father was an Israelite. So his mother, the concubine, the Shechemite, well, he had that ethnic lineage, but it was only half of his ethnic lineage. So I think in reality, what we see here is that Abimelech probably did not grow up with the Israelites. We'll talk about that a little bit more next week. He probably ended up spending most of his time with the people of his concubine mother. So there's a sense in which what he's saying here is not, I'm one of you ethnically, as much as it is, I'm one of you culturally. What is that? What's that noise? We don't know. All right, moving on. It's not going to bother me the rest of the sermon. We'll be fine. (laughs) He's saying, I'm one of you culturally. I know your food. I know your idioms and accents. I know your customs and culture. But the rest of my brothers... They're not like us, and they're going to rule over us. You don't want them ruling over you, do, do you? They don't know our people or our way of life. They're a threat to us, but not me. This, friends, is what tribalism looks like. Tribalism can be summarized in one sentence like this. If they look like us and sound like us and come from us, then they must be good. And if they don't look like us, and if they don't sound like us, and if they don't come from us, then they must be bad. Tribalism can be very dangerous. I'm going to give you four reasons why. Reason number one, tribalism looks at the outward markers instead of at the inner man. So in 1 Samuel 16, verse 7, as uh, the people of Israel are trying to think about who they should appoint as their king, The Lord makes it clear that Israel doesn't evaluate kings in the right way. He says this, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on his height of of stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. In Luke 16, Jesus says this, You are the ones who justify yourselves before men. But God knows your hearts. For what is prized among men is detestable before God. So these leaders of Shechem, they looked at Abimelech and they prized all the wrong things. They checked all the wrong boxes. If they would have judged Abimelech with right judgment, the judgment of the Lord, they would have saw that Abimelech was detestable in the Lord's sight. Which leads me to the second reason that tribalism is dangerous. Tribalism doesn't recognize the possibility of danger within. If you guys have seen the 70s scary movie, When a Stranger Calls, you probably know the famous tagline from that movie, it's coming from inside the house, right? And it is very often the case that the greatest dangers we face are not out there, but they're actually inside the house with us. They're they're with us behind the dead-bolted door and instead of outside of the deadbolted door. And, and Scripture tells us a number of things about this, this danger within. Scripture tells us that Satan masquerades as an angel of light. Satan tells us that wolves creep into the church dressed up like sheep. Scripture tells us that heretics join our ranks by saying and doing all of the right things. Tribalism does not recognize this, this danger at all. Tribalism merely examines the glossy exterior and says, yeah, he's one of us. We're good to go. 
The third danger of tribalism is that it enables evil. You can see this throughout history. We can take, for example, the nation of Germany. The thing that undergirded all of the evil that, not, that uh, Nazi Germany did during that time was a nationalistic fervor. And by the way, nation is just a really big tribe, okay? And it was the nationalistic, the tribalistic fervor of Nazi Germany to, to preserve everything about their cultural identity that allowed them, that empowered their leaders to do all of the really evil and terrible things that they did. Look at verse 24. Go to chapter 9, verse 24. That the violence done to the 70 sons of Jeroboam might come, and their blood be laid on Abimelech, their brother, who killed them. Okay, so Abimelech's guilty. And on the men of Shechem, okay, they're guilty, who strengthened his hand to kill his brothers. It's not just Abimelech who's guilty. It's not just the worthless men that he hired with, uh, to go with him as mercenaries. It's the people of Shechem that strengthened his hand to do these evil deeds. This is one of the dangers of tribalism. We can be so fanatical about our tribe that we'll do anything to protect it and to promote it, including strengthening the hand of an evil leader. The fourth danger of tribalism is that it confuses the watching world about the gospel. What makes the gospel look so amazing is exactly what's happening in this church this morning. A bunch of people who have no business being in the same room together are in the same room together and they love each other. Tribalism makes sense to the world. Tribalism says, you look like me, you talk like me, you dress like me, you like the same kinds of things that I like, you're a fan of the same sports teams, we have the same politics, therefore, I like you. That's tribalism. We're on the same team. But what we have in the church, what the gospel does to us in the church, it doesn't look anything like that. And it's amazing in the, in the gospel, in the church, we say, you know, you don't look like me, and I think you talk kind of funny, and you dress kind of weird, and honestly, there are some things about you that confuse me, or frustrate me, or scare me. That's true in our very church, but I don't care about that because when I look at you, the most meaningful thing that I see is not all these exterior identity markers, but rather when I look at you, I see Jesus. Because he's living in you. Now those are the four dangers of tribalism. Now I need to pause and qualify everything I've just said. We do need some identity markers. Not only are identity markers useful and important, but we can't really exist without them. We have them in this church. They're just different. One of our identity markers is, for example, do you believe the gospel? Do you believe the trinity? Do you believe in Christ's atoning work on the cross? Those mark us out. They make us distinct from the world and distinct from other churches. The problem is not with identity markers per se, but rather the exaltation of the wrong kind of identity markers. We're Republicans! Or if you're in New York, we're Democrats! Right? That's the problem. So in this morning's text, for example, we see the exaltation of external identity markers. He's strong, he's persuasive, and he's one of us. He should be our king. As Christians, we have to evaluate the fitness of our leaders based more on godly character and virtue and qualification than what family they may come from or where they went to school or what phrases they use. 
It is so easy for a false teacher to creep into the church because he's just learned some of the local idioms. He's learned to say the right phrases. We shouldn't, we shouldn't even appoint leaders based on who they oppose. That's kind of the danger that I'm feeling right now in evangelical churches. We're choosing people based on who and what they're against as the sort of main qualifier. Now, I want to be clear. The kind of tribalism that we see here in Judges 9, it is not a light thing. This is not a low-grade fever kind of sin. In verse 3, we read this. The hearts of the leaders of Shechem were inclined to follow Abimelech. Inclined. Now, as we read through that first section of the text together, that word may not have stuck out to you. But in Scripture, it's actually a pretty significant word. It's loaded with meaning. Whenever you see that people's hearts are inclined somewhere in Scripture, this is communicating the language of idolatry. So think about being in your car for a second. You're driving down the road. You take your hands off the wheel. Okay, you have a new car. Guess what? Your car probably just goes straight. But if you're like me, you drive an old truck, 250,000 miles on it. I take my hands off the wheel. I immediately go left right? My truck is inclined in that direction because I'm not doing the maintenance on it. Now, you're not doing the maintenance on your heart, and so, and this is true of all of God's people, because of the sin that lives in our heart, if God's law is not controlling the steering wheel of our heart, we are inclined towards idolatry. That's just our natural setting. So, in Numbers 15, verse 39, the Lord says this, speaking of his law, It shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord, to do them, (coughs) not to follow after your own heart and your own eyes, which are inclined to whore after. Deuteronomy 31, 21. For I know that my people are inclined to do evil today. In verse 16, Jotham, the brother of Abimelech, When he's delivering this speech, this parable, he asks this rhetorical question. He says, if you have chosen Abimelech in good faith and integrity, and the point is obviously that they have not chosen Abimelech in good faith and integrity. They've chosen him out of a corrupt, idolatrous, tribalistic faith. Tribes are not all bad. That's not the point that I'm making. As a matter of fact, one of the most beautiful pictures in the entire Bible is a picture of a tribe. On the last day, every single Christian in this room will be utterly loyal to their tribe. But here's the difference. On that day, our tribe will be the most unique tribe in all of human history. There will be no sin. It will be full of people who speak different languages with different skin colors and hair textures It will be full of people from all over the globe, not just from our little patch of dirt. It will be full of people who all believe the same thing, that's the gospel, wear the same clothes, the white robes of Christ's righteousness, who all sing the same songs, worthy is the Lamb, and who love the same God, the one true God of the Bible. Listen to what that tribe will be like from Revelation 5. Worthy are you to take the scroll And to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. So any kind of way you can try to, according to the flesh, divide people up, I'm going to pull people from every one of those. 
And I'm going to make one perfect tribe, one true tribe, one holy tribe. And then he goes on, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. This final tribe will not be inclined towards idolatry. It will only worship the risen Christ in spirit and truth. This is going to be a tribe crafted by Christ, united in Christ, and existing entirely for the glory of Christ. So until then, let's make sure that we hold our tribal identity markers very, very loosely. Amen? Point number two. I know what you're thinking. Six more? That was probably the longest point. Hang in there. We're going we're gonna to do this. Point number two. Did I already tell you what it was? Curse. Curse. <coughs> As I was studying Judges 9, I couldn't uh, escape the feeling that what Abimelech was doing here was in large part owing to his father. That this was a kind of generational curse. Now, if you come from like the prosperity gospel or Pentecostal church, you might be getting a little, getting the heebie-jeebies when I say generational curse, right? I'm not referring to a magical spell or something that a shaman can do to you when he throws chicken bones on the ground, right? I'm, I'm, I'm pointing to the reality that I think we all intuitively understand and accept, which is this. Bad parenting leads to dysfunctional children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. Abimelech, it seems, was set up for failure by his father from the get-go. So consider his family dynamic. He was the son of a concubine, which means that he was not only illegitimate, but also an outsider within his own family. He had 69 brothers, and every last one of them looked at him like he was not really one of them. On top of that, uh, the sons of concubines don't typically receive an inheritance. We're going to see that next week in chapter 11. So can you see how this sinful family dynamic created by Gideon and his father might lead Abimelech to want to rage? To want to kill all of his brothers and take the throne by force? Secondly, consider his training. We know from chapter 8, verse 20, that Gideon trained his sons in the ways of violence. Go back there. Turn back to chapter 8, verse 20. Remember, this is when Gideon had caught up to the two Midianite kings, Ziba and Zalmunna, and he was about to put the vengeance on them. Verse 20, so he said to Jether, his firstborn, rise and kill them. But then we know that Jether was afraid to do it. He was a little bit of a weakling, couldn't do it, so finally Abimelech did it. But the point here is that Gideon is training his offspring, starting with his eldest, to try to emulate him. This is what sons want to do. We want to make our dads proud and happy. And what Gideon wants from his son is to do violence. Now think about Abimelech for a moment. Son of a concubine. Illegitimate. Think about how much more he would have wanted his father's acceptance. Think about how willing he would have been to kill Ziba and Zalmunna. And when he didn't get the opportunity, think how he might overexert himself to try to prove to his father 
that he really is worthy of his love. Think about what that might do to him and his person and, and what kind of destructive nature could build up within him in light of this family dynamic. Third, consider his father's own example. As we saw in chapter 8, Gideon left a legacy of violence and vengeance. When he should have shown grace to Succoth and Penuel, he went back and he exercised extreme vengeance. He, ran, he ravaged them. And that's what Abimelech's doing here. He's doing the same thing. The Shechemite leaders that plotted against Abimelech, well, you can understand if Abimelech would go and, you know, hash it out with them. And it's not good that he would kill them, but we could understand that a little bit more. You tried to kill me, so now I'm going to kill you. But Abimelech doesn't stop there, does he? He goes and he kills all the people of the city. And then he burns the tower full of a thousand people alive. This is what Gideon did. Gideon tasted a little bit of violence and then it got worse and worse and worse and Abimelech saw it all. This is not the first time in the Bible we've seen this kind of generational curse, the way that violence uh, not only perpetuates generationally but also gets worse and more extreme. Do you remember the story of Lamech in, in Genesis? He was one of the great-grandsons of Cain. Remember Cain? He killed his brother. Level one of violence. I'm just going to kill one guy, right? And then here comes Lamech a couple of generations later, and here he's bragging to his wives, Ada and Zillah, lovely names. He's, he's bragging to them about how violent he, he is. He says, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I should start talking to Amber like that. Hear my voice, Amber. Hear what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. This is exactly what we see with Gideon and Abimelech. You know, there's some pretty obvious application here about how dads need to be good dads and train your children upright and the, your sons are watching you and that's all true and I think it's pretty obvious. I don't want to do that right now. I want to I have a moment of celebration. I, wanna, I want us to consider and to be overjoyed by the testimonies of so many families in our church where the generational curse has been broken. How many of us have grown up in a family? You know what? Here's what I want you to do. I'm just going to say a word, and when I say it, I want you to raise your hand if you grew up in a family like this, okay? Don't be ashamed. This is your testimony before God. If you grew up in a family that was abusive, raise it high. Religious, keep it up. Religiously irresponsible. Didn't take you to church, didn't disciple you. Heretical, taught you. Hey, I said keep your hands up. A little Bimelech in all of us. Addicted. Raise your hand. So many, okay, put them down. That was a test. Simon says, put them down. That is so many of our stories. But praise God, that's not the end of our story. The Lord intervened. He saved us. Guys, as far back as I know in my family tree, I have drug addicts and abusers. My great-grandmother, my grandmother, my mother. The Lord stepped in and saved me. He broke the cycle. And now, all of us who have had that cycle broken, we are following him. We're raising up our children 
in his way, according to his truth. And so if that's you, brother, sister, if you've escaped any of those things that we talked about because God has been kind to you, you should celebrate that. You should rejoice in that. You should recount that testimony to your children. I don't tell my kids all the grimy details of what my life was like before I became, before I became a Christian, but I tell them often, you have no idea what God has done in this family. Celebrate that in your home. Point number three, vacillation. When we were in John's gospel, we saw over and over again that the crowds, their hearts are fickle. The masses, they are just all over the place. We love you today, we hate you tomorrow. And this, this reality that the masses typically have a fickle heart, it's not just true in our day or in the days of Jesus. It's just the, the, the way that human beings act when they get together and sin. And so it was true in the days of the judges. Look at chapter 9, verse 26. And Gael, the son of Ebed, excuse me, Gal, the son of Ebed, moved into Shechem with his relatives, and the leaders of Shechem put confidence in him. Now look at verses 28 and 29. And Gal, the son of Ebed, said, Who is Abimelech? And who are we of Shechem that we should serve him? Is he not the son of Jerobel, and is not Zebul his officer? Serve the men of Hamor, the father of Shechem. But why should we serve him? We'll just stop at verse 28. You get the point. You remember how easy it was for Abimelech to come and persuade the people to follow him? Seventy is not as good as one, and I'm one of you. Two arguments. But then Gael, the son of Ebed, comes, and he goes to the people, and he persuades them to betray Abimelech. And his rationale for doing so is not very clever. His argument is twofold. Who is Abimelech? And I should be your leader. <laughs> And the people, instead of going, oh, that's not very persuasive, they say, okay, you're right. We want you to be our leader. This whole situation, it reminds me of thing I've seen it before, I've heard of it, you have too. When someone likes a man or woman, and that man or woman is in a relationship, and this person persuades that person in a relationship to cheat on their significant other to be with them. And then finally, that person leaves their significant other to be with that first person. And so now you have this new couple. And then the person that you persuaded to cheat cheats again on you this time, and you're just flabbergasted. You just, I can't believe it. How could she ever? I didn't know he would. You persuaded him to cheat. He left her to be with you. And now, same thing. That's what this whole situation reminds me of. Your grandma's wisdom is still true. If they'll do it for you, they'll do it to you. What we find in this text is the story of one persuasive, powerful, and violent leader being replaced by the next. Slightly more persuasive, slightly more powerful, slightly more violent leader. And friends, you have to know that this is always going, there's always going to be another guy, another, a bigger fish in the sea. No one is king of the hill forever. So here are two points of application. The first is for church leaders and aspiring church leaders. Make sure that the people who are following you are following you for the right reasons. It feels good to be chosen. We like to be in charge. We want to be admired. But if you're in your position of authority for the wrong reasons, you better believe that the people who appointed you for those wrong reasons will replace you for reasons that are just as wrong. Then for the church, 
as you can see in this text, competition for leadership, status, honor, and authority, it hurts those who are unlucky enough to be caught in the crossfire. So don't choose leaders for the wrong reasons. Don't choose leaders that will even make this kind of competition possible in their ministry. Choose leaders based on biblical virtues and godly character. If you do that, this kind of competition will be all but impossible. You know, if I'm the pastor of this church and a challenger <laughs> rises up to try to take me down, I just assume it would be a non-issue, you know? I'll just say, well, I'm, here are my qualifications. Hopefully you have the wisdom and the godliness to recognize that this person doesn't have the qualifications. And if you do send me on my way, well, I was probably not doing my job very well in the first place. Now, let me wrap up point number three like this. I want us to see that the masses in Judges 9 were so fickle, so fickle, when their leader died, they just went home. Oh, we're done. They weren't fighting for a cause. They were fighting for a man, a sinful man, a fallen man. And friends, don't we see this in too many churches today? We see a, a, a leader come along who's very obviously gifted with all the bright, shiny gifts, none of the gifts that allow you to serve in the shadows, but the big, bright, shiny gifts, a big row of perfect teeth, a, an immaculate speaking ability. Ooh, that was powerful. He can organize the church in a way that's not really biblical, but it, it really makes the church seem to grow. And so then we build everything up around this man. And then the man fails. Or he dies. Or he leaves. And then what happens? Well, the audience does too. So what if we built our churches around a cause rather than around a man? Around the gospel rather than a gifted leader? Around Jesus rather than a strong personality? Something to consider. Point number four, word. All right, now we're getting to Jotham, the son of Gideon, the brother of Abimelech that escaped and delivered the parable of the bramble bush. Jotham is not a mighty warrior, but he does seem to be a wise man of God, and his name actually communicates that. He has to flee for a time, but he's not utterly afraid. He stands up, and he delivers this message to the leaders of Shechem, a parable. And there are two possibilities for Shechem when they hear this parable. The first is that they would hear the parable, recognize the truth of the parable, and then repent of the sins that the parable has pointed out to them. And the sin, of course, is that, of course, is that Abimelech has taken this leadership on himself when he is in no way qualified to do it. The second option is that Shechem hears the parable, hardens their heart to the truth of the parable, and then heaps curses down on their own head by their lack of repentance. And you know how the story goes. Shechem hardens their heart. Now here's what I want us to see. I want us to see that there is a competition taking place in Judges 9. Yes, it is a competition between Jotham and Abimelech, or we might even say between Jotham and the leaders of Shechem. But underneath it all, there's a competition between the word and the sword. You've probably heard the phrase before, the pen is mightier than the sword. And that's true. 
But what this phrase really means, what it's trying to help you see, is that the word is more powerful than violence. The sword can accomplish much in this fallen world, and sometimes in this fallen world, the sword must be drawn in the cause of love. But all too often, the sword is drawn in hatred. So here's what we need to know. In one sense, this is perhaps the entire message of salvation history. The word of love, rightly defined. The word of love will always defeat the violence of hatred. Which is why when Peter, trying to protect his master, draws the sword to protect Jesus in the garden, the Lord Jesus responds to him like this, Put your sword back in its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. And isn't that true? Isn't that what we see with Abimelech? He takes with the sword. He perishes by the sword. Now when Peter laid down his sword, it's not like he was just done fighting for the cause. No, after he was restored by Jesus, he lifted up his voice. He preached powerful sermons that drew thousands to Jesus. He gave counsel and wisdom to the early church. And then finally, he put his pen to parchment and he wrote the words of Holy Scripture. What could Peter have accomplished with the sword that night in the garden? What could he have done against the guard with his sword? Probably nothing. What did Peter later accomplish with the word? He set the world on fire. When it comes to the, sp- the power of the word, perhaps no one has said it better than the reformer Martin Luther. Speaking of his battle with the forces of uh, medieval Roman Catholicism, which were very quick to use the sword against their enemies, Luther has this to say. Take me as an example. I opposed indulgences and in all the papists, but never with force. I simply taught preached, and wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my friends Philip and Amsdorf, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor ever inflicted such losses upon it. I did nothing. The word did everything. Point number five, judgment. What I want us to see in this fifth point, friends, is that everything that happens in Judges 9 is a judgment from the Lord. Go back and look at chapter 8, verse 33. Chapter 8, verse 33. As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal Bareth their god. And you know this is the pattern of the book of Judges. A, a, a judge is, 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 is lifted up by God. The judge rescues Israel. The judge dies. The people revert back to their sin. And so they're under judgment. And what we see here is that the length of this judgment uh, for Abimelech was three years. But what I'm most interested here is not the length of the judgment, but the manifestation of the judgment. How did God bring this judgment about in the life of Israel? And we saw that back in verse 23. Just go back there and look again. 
And God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem, and the leaders of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech. So God sent an evil spirit to bring about his judgment. Here's what we do know. We know that God is not the author of evil. But that does not mean that God is not sovereign over evil. You see, friends, if God is not sovereign over evil, then sovereignty doesn't really mean anything. Sovereignty means complete and absolute rule. So what we see here is that God directs this evil in the form of a spirit for his good purposes, like a a farmer channeling the waters of a stream towards his crops. Or maybe, since water is life-giving, a better analogy would be a farmer channeling manure onto his field so that his crops will grow bright and beautiful and strong. So what good was accomplished through God's sovereign use of this malevolent spirit? Go to the end of chapter 9, verses 56 and 57. This is the narrator's final word to us on the matter. After Abimelech's head was crushed, thus God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he committed against his father in killing his 70 brothers. And God also made all the evil of the men of Shechem return on their heads, and upon them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jeroboam. In bringing this spirit of malevolence into the land, God was able to punish both Abimelech, who was evil, and the Shechemites, who were evil, in one fell swoop. God used an evil spirit to punish evil people. Don't let this kind of just move past you too quickly. God used evil to destroy evil. This is the God that we serve. We can't do that. We tried to use evil to destroy evil in World War II. Do you remember that? We sided with Stalin to oppose Hitler. It worked, praise God. And then we had to fight communism across the globe for 80 years. We can't do what God does the way that he does it. And so at this point, I just want us to stop for a little praise break. This is the God that we serve, Romans eleven thirty-three. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Now, I want you to see two things here. Number one, I want you to see that God uses all things, including evil, even evil spirits, for good. For the good of his glory and for the good of his people. This whole situation reminds me very much of Joseph. Do you remember Joseph in the book of Genesis? His brothers sinned against him horrendously. They were on the verge of killing him, but finally they were like, nah, we won't kill him. We'll just sell him into slavery. And then after Joseph suffered tremendously, he came face to face with his brothers. Hmm, time to get that get back, right? This is going to be good. Tell him off, Joseph. What do you got to say? Joseph says, as for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result. Their brothers, in that moment, they were only thinking of evil. But God could see something different. In, in Judges chapter 9, this spirit wasn't thinking, I'm being superintended by God to bring about a better result. No, he was thinking, I'm here to mess stuff up. But God had a better plan. The second thing that I want us to see here 
is that God rarely shouts down from the heavens to announce his judgment. He's not going to say, listen to me, you're getting your just due for your sin and rebellion. Sometimes he does that in the Bible. He does it through through the judges and through the prophets. He says, hey, you've messed up and let me tell you about yourself. But in the day of the church when prophecy has passed away, you should probably not expect to hear that. And so what we have here in Judges 9, to me, feels like DVD commentary. You guys remember that? Some of you guys are like, what's a DVD? Is that on my iTunes? I'm so old. Back in my day, when we used to watch DVDs after VHS, uh, if you like The Office or certain movies, you can uh, put it in and you can go to the bonus feature. Why did I just say The Office? That's how much I love The Office. You can go to the bonus features And you can click commentary. And then you can watch the show or the movie as it normally is. But this time with the writers or the actors or the director kind of telling you a little bit more about the scene. What was happening? What doesn't the audience see and know? Well, that's what God is doing for us here in Judges chapter 9. He's he's telling us what would not have been seen and known to those who were experiencing it. The people in Judges 9 did not know that an evil spirit was in their midst wreaking havoc and that God was superintending that evil spirit to bring about his good. But we know that because we get to see it. In the same way, you may not see what God is doing right now. You may not see what he's doing on the world stage, in this country, in this church, or even in your heart. You don't know what spirit may be trying to wreak havoc on us, what kind of evil God may be sovereignly controlling in our country to bring about a judgment that perhaps we deserve. He hasn't revealed it to us. But here's what we can rest in. Here's what we can rejoice in. Just because we can't see God using evil to do good doesn't mean that he is not. You can believe me when I tell you whether it takes three minutes or three years in the case of Abimelech or three millennia if the Lord tarries. All of God's good purposes will come to pass. One more thing on this point. God's superintending action in these events to does not alleviate the responsibility of all the parties involved. The Bimelech, the leaders of of the Shechemites, they're still culpable. And to help you see that, I want to show you in Acts chapter 4. Peter and John are preaching to the masses. It's a real revival situation. And this is what they say. Listen carefully. For truly in the city, that's Jerusalem, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Peter and John are praying to God, and they're saying, this terrible evil has happened. Your son Jesus was murdered by Herod, by Pontius Pilate, by the Gentiles, by the Jews. All guilty, 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 guilty. And yet, God is the one who predestined these events. It's interesting, at the beginning of this prayer in verse 24 in Acts chapter 4, the disciples address the Lord by saying, Sovereign Lord. That's how they begin their prayer. We're going to recognize right at the outset that a lot of evil has happened here, and you have been sovereign over it all. 
God is sovereign, he is good, and his judgments are perfect and true. Point six. This is the quickest point. You guys are going to love this. Grace. Look at the next chapter. Look at chapter 10. After Abimelech, there arose to save Israel Tola, son of Pua, son of Dada, a man of Issachar, and he lived at Shamir in the hill country of Ephraim. And he judged Israel 23 years. Then he died and was buried at Shamir. If you Google, now you probably don't have to. I know you guys know who the 12 judges of Israel, role, uh, of Israel you know, you just have them, you know, memorized, wrote memory. But if you needed to Google who were the 12 judges of Israel, you would see that the list goes from Gideon to Tola. And the reason why is because Abimelech was not a judge. A judge is someone who is appointed by God to save the people. Abimelech is someone who stole authority from God and was an enemy of God's people. Abimelech was not raised up by God to save Israel. He was raised up by Satan to destroy the Jews. And so even as Abimelech's head has been crushed by this mighty woman in Judges 9, there is still a salvation that is needed in Judges 10. And... Tola, he gets two verses. But that doesn't mean that his work wasn't good. It doesn't mean that his work wasn't worthy. The language of this text says that the Lord used Tola to save Israel. I've been reading a lot of church history lately, and I've got to tell you, there are a lot of Tolas in the annals of church history. A lot of people with just kind of cliff notes in some of these textbooks who may have done more to protect the gospel than some of the most prominent people that we know about. There are a lot of tolas in this church. As a matter of fact, many of us probably won't even have the level of prominence that tola has. Our name will not be remembered. This whole room is sitting here looking at the Bible, right? There's tola. He's in it, okay? We're not going to get that. But none of that matters. God can still use us to bring about his good purposes, to accomplish salvation for his elect. Point number seven, authority. I got three things that I want us to see here, okay? The first is that I want us to see that we must be careful and we must not presume that we should have authority. Right? Maybe another way of saying this is that we should not accept or desire promotion before proper preparation. Okay? Uh, I think all of us, in some sense, we have this tendency to look at the one who's in charge and think, I could do a better job than him, right? This guy doesn't know what he's doing. I should be in charge. Well, you know, sometimes that's true. Your mayor, your president, your pastor, whoever, may very well be incompetent. It could also be the case that you are filled with hubris and that if you were in charge, you would hurt a lot of people by exercising authority that you are in no way qualified to exercise. We have to remember the dual nature of authority in a fallen world, friends. It is a very good thing, but because of sin, it is a very dangerous thing. In this morning's text, we see 
that Abimelech did great harm in claiming this authority for himself. He cured, killed nearly every member of his family. He utterly destroyed the lineage of Gideon minus Jotham. And then he killed who knows how many thousands of people, all because he claimed authority without qualification. So if you love people and someone wants to promote you in a position of authority over them and you think you're not qualified, you should say that. The second thing I want us to see here is that we have to be careful of who we give authority. We've already kind of said this, but I want us to touch on it again. It's going to be really quick. Uh, Political commentators love this phrase. They love to say, elections have consequences. You better believe that's true. And those of us who have the ability to choose our leaders, we must make sure that we choose our leaders with regard to God's law. That we have the fear of the Lord governing us as we cast our votes in the church, in our political system, wherever. Because if we don't, we may very well be like the leaders of Shechem. We may appoint the one over us who will destroy us. And then the third thing I want us to see here, I want us to end on a high note. I want us to consider the utter blessing of godly authority. Look at verse 15 again. Chapter 9, verse 15. And the bramble said to the trees, if in good faith you are anointing me king over you, then come and take refuge in my shade. Have you ever taken uh, refuge in the shade before? Of course you have. We all have, right? I have too. I've tried to squeeze my big old body as deep into a sliver of shade as possible in order to escape the, the summer sun from bearing down on me. After doing Murph on Labor Day, I'm just trying to find somewhere to escape the sun. Just give me any shadow, any shade. Now, here's what you need to know. Throughout Scripture, shade is used as an image of relief, particularly relief from oppression and injustice, relief from unjust rulers. So consider the words of God to the oppressive Moabites in Isaiah chapter 1. He says this, excuse me, Isaiah 16. Give counsel, grant justice, make your shade like night at the height of noon. Right now, the way you're ruling and exercising your authority, it's oppressing people like the summer sun. I need you to bring justice about and give them relief. In Ezekiel 17, God offers the promise of shade to the people of Israel who are suffering in exile. This is what he says. I myself will take a sprig from the lofty top of the cedar and I will set it out. I will break off from the topmost of its young twigs a tender one and I myself will plant it on a high and lofty mountain. On the mountain height of Israel will I plant it that it may bear branches and produce fruit and become a noble cedar. And under the cedar will dwell every kind of bird in the shade of its branches. What is this tree, this mighty noble cedar that will give shade to all who sit underneath it? Well, it's, it's none other than God himself. This is a prophecy about Jesus. This is why the psalmist can say, 
These words in Psalm 121, the Lord is your shade on your right hand. Friends, in Jesus, God offers us the relief we need from the corruption of this fallen world. Every kind of corruption. The corrupt authorities who may govern us. The corrupt populace that may choose evil leaders to be over us. The corrupt nature of our own souls. The corruption of sin. The gospel says, friends, that Jesus was set on fire by the white-hot wrath of God so that we might find relief in the shade of his cross. You know, Jesus did not have to endure that heat. He could have come, as the book of Malachi says, and burned us down to the root. But he didn't do that. Instead, he was burned for us. And the only relief for his soul was the black shade of death itself. Think with me for a moment about the nature of shade. What makes shade so great? Is it the darkness? Well, no, because it's not that dark. And we can be in darkness and not enjoy it. As a matter of fact, most of us don't enjoy being in the dark. We're afraid of it. Amber, the other night, had to run inside the church. Don't leave. It's not the darkness. What is it? I think it's the escape. It's the relief. You see, when we're in the shade, we're close enough to the heat that we can feel it. We're close enough to the sun that we can see it. Nevertheless, we cannot be burned by it. We are protected. And friends, this is what Jesus does for us in salvation. He brings us close enough to the holiness of God that we can see and feel the heat of God's holiness, his holy nature. But then Jesus, God himself, shelters us from God's holiness lest it destroy us. He gives us the grace of relief. He is our shade. You have to be careful though, friends. There are a thousand briar bushes in this world. Abimelech is just one of them. There are briar bushes in our city. There are briar bushes in our state, in our country. And they are all crying out to us, come, take shade in me. But here's what you need to know, and you may not have seen this in the first pass-through, but a briar bush is only about two feet off the ground. And it doesn't really provide great shade. It's a thorn bush. In order to get under a briar bush, you have to get down on your belly and crawl on the dirt like Satan, the serpent. And then as you attempt to crawl under the bramble bush, your back is going to be destroyed by the thorns that scrape at your flesh. This is what unjust rulers do. They promise relief. They promise grace. They promise shade. But in the end, they only degrade you and destroy you. Now, as we close, I want us to consider, consider the sweet joy that godly authority can bring. Our brother Jonathan read it for us already. But it, it's significant. You need to know the background here. King David was not a perfect ruler, but was by and large a good ruler who followed after the Lord. These are his last words. That's significant, his last words. He had one thing that he could say to the world, to his people, before he left. One piece of wisdom to impart. 
And this is what he chose to say. The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. When one rules justly, he is like the sweet morning light. This just blows me away. In the gospel, we see a God who is both the sun and the shade. Now, in just a moment, we're going to sing a hymn together. We're going to sing the hymn, Joy to the World. And in this song, the entire earth is commanded to shout with joy as she receives her king. Why? Well, the hymn says it this way, because... He rules the world with truth and grace. He is the opposite of Abimelech. Joy to the world indeed. Let me pray. Father, uh, we hope that our hearts are truly full of joy as we respond to your word with singing, with prayer, and with one final word from you, God. Help us to appreciate how good you have been to us. The way that you have blessed us with an abundance of good authority. In an age that is so anti-authority, so against authority, so afraid and suspicious of authority, help us to recognize the good that you have done to us through the right use of your authority. Joy to the world, we pray. Amen.